Hi everyone, I just wanted to jump in before today's interview with Vlado Schultz and George Didier that Vlado is going to be teaching an online seminar series, The Mirage of Truth, The Psychology of Illusion and Self-Deception in Radical Beliefs. It's online only in its four Thursdays, March 7th through the 28th from 5 to 6.15 p.m. Um, five CEs are available. So if you'd like to register, just um, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Thanks. This is Patricia Martin, and I'm your host for Jung in the World, a podcast of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Today, we're talking about the psychology beneath religion when it becomes dark. That is, it becomes egocentric and based on projection of shadow in ways that open up serious moral questions. Joining me today are George Didier and Vlado Schultz, authors of the book Dark Religion, Fundamentalism from the Perspective of Jungian Psychology published by Chiron Publishing. We will link to that below. Let me briefly introduce you to Dr. George Didier is a clinical psychologist, pastoral psychotherapist, and a diplomat Jungian analyst in private practice in Chicago, Illinois, and the surrounding region. He holds two doctorate degrees, one in pastoral psychology and one in clinical psychology. Also joining us is Vladislav Schultz, He's a psychotherapist working in the Milwaukee metro area. He holds advanced training credentials as a diplomat Jungian psychoanalyst. And Vlada was the author of several depth psychology books, which we will link to below so that you can check them out. Their book, Dark Religion, takes up the psychology of religion as a destructive force and why it's important to understand the shadow side of religion. Hello and welcome to Jung in the World. Hello, Patricia. So, George and Vlado, I want to ask you right from the top, this idea of dark religion, it's, it's not only deep, but it's broad now in the 21st century. And I want to ask you, what got you interested in this topic in the first place? Well, I think for myself, I first want to say thank you, Patricia, for hosting and inviting Vlado and I. It's a very rich experience. I'm sure it's going to be. And um, I'm looking forward to the hour with you and Vlado. And I also just for a brief moment want to thank Vlado who invited me into this enterprise of writing Dark Religion and working with them. Thank you, Vlado. Oh, thank you, George. Yes. Well, I was born and raised in a very large Catholic family. And since a little kid, I was always interested in symbol and ritual and Eucharist in the Catholic Church. So I developed a interest in uh, spirituality quite early in my life, and I went on and got degrees in theology. And then I became a little disillusioned with the church and started studying more of Carl Jung. And I think he's the most profound, uh, well, had the most profound effect on me as a psychologist in the study of religion and spirituality. And I began to ask other questions about religion is so transformative and powerful. How do people become so condemning, righteous, 
rigid, narrow in their beliefs. How does religion become almost truncated for them? So when Velado queried me about working with this, I thought it was an opportunity to really explore that element of fundamentalism that I've run across quite often in my life and see it so prominent in our culture today. Vlada, what would you say about this? You were the you were the collaborator with George. So I grew up in uh, something that we refer to as a communism, perhaps. You know, Czechos- Czechoslovakia. I um, was 17 years old when the when the communism fell, so it's, uh, still quite young. But what I was uh, so you live in communism. You, I was naive, I guess, uh, enough and young to to believe that the truth is something obvious, right? That that virtually is difficult to avoid it. And, you know, we believed in communism that it's all just a lie that the party is presenting to us and they try to spin this and people actually know better, right? But then I came to the United States and my eyes became to be really more open and I just realized that uh, that there was a powerful game here and, and, you know, that people pretending that the king has uh, beautiful clothes and that was it it permeates the politics it permeates the everyday life and i mean that that's that fundamentalism or the or the dark religion uh, was really so widespread so i just started to connect the dots and i went back to sort of my jung understanding and i connected the jung dot with the dot what was happening around me so it really came from this kind of an inner need to understand what is truth, really. Like, I was playing with the idea, of course, is there a God? What's, what, what is religion? What is God? And then suddenly came to me, is there an unhealthy way to look at it? Like, what is God and what is religion? So, When you said that word unhealthy, it, it, it causes me to ask that other question about shadow material in the collective. And the book does talk a, a fair bit about the shadow side of religion and what that means for the collective. But as you would both tell me as Jungian analysts to understand that shadow exists, but to face it is a different thing. It's a different matter. What told you that the collective was ready to face this shadow of dark religion? To be honest with you, I don't know if we knew if collective was ready to face it. Um, I think it's a it's a process, and it certainly arose in me and George and I guess others the need to to explore this topic. Um, I know we were not the first one, of course. I mean, there were um, the fundamentalism project of uh, Martin Appleby from 1990s and. Karen Armstrong wrote a lot about that. Of course, Chris Hedges and, and others. And so, Jung himself, he was exploring this topic since he experienced two world wars world wars back to back. And he was really asking this question. Maybe he didn't use the term dark religion. He spoke about uh, isms. He talked uh, about one-sidedness. But really, his take on it was really profound on looking what can happen when the ego hides behind the self or when there are different phenomena of 
of, of shadowing the ego, right? Like when the ego is possessed at the process of inflation or illusion, uh, etc. So I, I don't know if the, the collective is ready, but we are hoping that we are bringing something beyond sociological and um, beyond philosophical take on fundamentalism. We try to look really, we all have dark religion in ourselves and we all have a duty to look at the mirror and try explore how we can um, become a better person and understand the reality. So you used the word in the title of the book, in the subtitle, fundamentalism through... Uh, a Jungian perspective. And and I want to get to this definition of what you mean, you two mean by fundamentalism. Yeah, I could talk on that for a minute, but I just want to respond also to what Vlado was saying, Patricia, that what I was seeing in the culture was this beginning of a one-sidedness and a split with religion, politics, you name it. We were moving in a direction of one-sidedness, which is extreme a danger for us because we become more inflated. We think we're right. We see the world in a very narrow way and we're not open to criticism. And so I think the book wanted to open that view up and really deepen the understanding of fundamentalism, as Vlado was saying, with a Jungian background. That is working from an unconscious perspective of what, what may be happening in the world today, what's happening with religion and its history. So look, I, and I see that's getting worse today, 2023. You know, we're so split in so many areas and one-sided in our culture and religion. Like my God against your God. Well, and I think we're also seeing an age where, you know, fueled by the internet, where people can form tribes and, and exchange misinformation and rev people up. Um, I heard a quote from, of all people, Condoleezza Rice, and she said her worry for the rising generations is that they're not talking to each other. And she said, if everyone in your peer group is saying amen, get new friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because because it it you know, it does inflate people to believe that their perspective is right and other people are wrong. And I think that's what you're speaking to, George. Yeah, yes, that's what I think we're both speaking to that in that sense of trying to understand fundamentalism in that light. Because as Vlado mentioned, this could go back, and I'll talk about it maybe to like 1890, a conversation with Jung and his father, uh, and how Jung took a different approach to this, uh, the opposite approach to fundamentalism that the fundamentalists do. Really clearly quite a difference, but we can get into that if you want to define fundamentalism. Yes, let's let's take that on, George. Yeah, maybe um, what's really in the basic idea is a return to the foundational principles or the foundation of the earliest maybe followers of the person who maybe had the religious experience and began some kind of religious um, phenomena or phenomenological experience and shared it with their people. But phenom- what, what am I trying to say? Fundamentalism really is a reaction to um, what's happening in our culture, it's fundamentalism is a negative reaction. It wants to go back and find security and retreat in the past and hold on to the values because the fundamentalists seem to be most afraid that big science 
and tradition is going to be lost because it's going to be replaced by big science and secular rationalism. So they, I think, more than anything, are very scared of losing what gives them meaning, what gives them purpose in life. And with that, they return to the basics in a very narrow way, and I think it truncates their religious faith. It doesn't allow them to be open. It truncates it, cuts it off from new life, and it becomes very rigid. Locked down, right? Yeah, locked down, exactly. Yeah, so is it, is it, a, is it a retreat into nostalgia, or is it a kind of building a wall between yourself and the future? I, I think both. Go ahead, Milato. What do you think? So I think what we started in our book, we started with an idea of fundamentalism, and it really started to expand into really a, a concept of dark religion that we could kind of fit under this umbrella cult or isms or even conspiracy theories or any possessions of mind. Um, so we said that there has to be three elements, that there is an inflation, there's a process of inflation that is an imago day, and um, and that there is ego. And the ego is really um, the one that is at stake here, right? Like ego creates certain defensive stances against numinous forces. So when it hides behind them, then that it hides behind the God. And then if it does it, then it becomes dark and it becomes a self-serving sort of a selfish game uh, for the ego. So when the numinous energies are, we kind of thought about not represented or not related to by the ego consciousness in, in a healthy or integrated ways, then the self is broken up to many different parts and it starts operating unconsciously. And it, it starts, the ego takes those energy as you use them for their own benefits. So it's in a way, it's a, we, can, we can call fundamentalism sort of a shadow religion. It, it really um, denies the living symbol. The symbol, really, their symbols in my world become dead. They're no longer life-giving. It's not tied to the organic inner life of the person. It's sort of given to them from top down, hierarchically, and it becomes concretized and literalized and made into a thing versus a, in a dynamic energy that they must constantly renew and face. Because that literalism, concrete thinking, keeps them caught in the past when they think they're pure and holy and reserved and they're called to this pristine past, which gives them, I think, the idea that all evil is outside them. They don't have a shadow. The evil's out there in the world. And we, like in the Eastern world, we must kill the infidel or the abortion doctor. We must attack the other because they're evil. And it splits that good and evil in such a way, it becomes radicalized and they can't be critical of their own views and emotions about religion. Yes, that, that's good, George. Yes, that's also very all very egoic. Yes. And I, I, I want to lean in a little bit here to Carl Jung's uh, philosophies about religion. So, he, as you both know, he was raised in a in a Protestant home. His father was a pastor, so he he had a, he had a front row seat to organized religion in the Protestant tradition, and he took his own journey um, of you know the spirit and the soul. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by a Jungian perspective on religion. So the way I uh, 
think how Jung thought about it, really that the, the religion is a process of individuation, right? That, that what Jung referred to as religion actually would we would refer to it as a spirituality nowadays. And often when we refer to religion, there would be something that Jung would call creed, a sort of an organized or prescribed religion. But when Jung spoke about spirituality, it really started from knowing yourself. And Jung said, wow, these are the powerful forces uh, within the psyche. And those powerful forces, those, those archetypes, are somehow pushing or pulling us to to feel, believe, and act certain way. So, and if we are not aware of it, we project those onto the others. We can vilify the other, we can demonize the other, and so on. So it is really the withdrawals of projections of those powerful forces and putting them back to the source of the individual, the, the human being who finds the answer via process. It's a believing in a great God doesn't make person great, right? It's really the deed into everyday hard work, self-reflection, and um, I would say the negotiation maybe or uh, dialoguing with these powerful forces. And Jung said that it, it is actually individuation is the opus contra naturam. It's a, it's a work against the nature. If we were left onto these forces, then we would be acting purely instinctively like uh, animals, but we would never question those behaviors, right? So religion comes with the, simultaneously with the rise of consciousness and with that all the moral dilemmas and, and paradoxical decisions uh, and so on. Yeah, that's good, Vlad. What I would trace it back as I was reflecting about Jung and his father, he had a lot of respect for his father, and his father deeply influenced him. But his father, he saw his father as a broken man and a weak man in the sense that he did not confront modernism. He did not confront the difference between tradition and modernity, science and religion. He retreated into dogma. So when Jung was confirmed and went through religious uh, ritual, he didn't have the experience and asked his dad. And his dad said, you ask too many questions, you just believe. And he saw his father shrinking from asking those deeper questions that he needed to. So I think with that issue with his father, maybe 25, 30 years later, Jung made a radical turn and said, what we think of metaphysics and out there, God, it's all inside. It's all in the unconscious. It's in the human psyche and soul that we must turn within and not look without in the sky for some kind of sky father or sky God and confront those issues of modernity and tradition, science and religion, where fundamentalists want to go back and grab on to the purity of it and literalize it. Jung wants to open that up, open the unconscious to a living God, what he would call, you've got experience. Have an experience of God or the divine, actually, to become a believer. So his whole approach was to develop a psychology of um, religious-making process from the unconscious. I, I want to cue off that religious-making process, George, because uh, Jung also believed that religion helps man, uh, humans, cope with the unknown. Yes. That it draws us in, into the mystery and, and, and adapts us to mystery is how I'm, I'm uh, interpreting that. And so... 
you know, I, I study the digital culture and I am intrigued to see the heightened levels of deep self-doubt in the rising generations, the uncertainty that they're facing in terms of the planet and the economy and um, national identities. And so I wonder also if fundamentalism isn't a reaction to that uncertainty. Do you have any thoughts on that, either one of you? Uh, so first, when you said that, that Jung saw a lot of value in the religion, I completely agree with that. I think, you know, he called uh, religion as a psychotherapeutic systems of the mankind. So, the you know, the religion is a process of consciousness and those, um, I, I don't want to say institutions, but those uh, systems that offer certain container for the affect can be can be very helpful. So, but it also if uh, those those energies can be used in a very unconscious um, and and very kind of a destructive way. And uh, when you are asking if people react to it, if people find um, if people are confused and scared, I I certainly agree with you. I think that fundamentalism really arose in Europe after the fall of the uh, Roman Empire. Suddenly, the structure uh, collapsed, the power collapsed, and so many fundamentalists from our position, um, institutions were created and become very, very radical and as a very reaction. So it, in, in, in a way, it's a process of how Donald Kalshed look at it, that people develop this soothing, cocooning fantasy or illusion that protects us from really facing those big and anxiety-causing questions. And rather than dealing with it and processing those consciously, we go to this idealized uh, state of mind and say, this is, please don't, uh, don't mess with my world. I already found the answer and I want to be, I want to be secure here. Just like we used in the, in our book, uh, uh, Odysseus and uh, on Ogigia Island, when Calypso which is the eye coverer or the, the coverer of the mind, close his eyes and said, don't worry about it. You'll be so safe here and you just have to stay with me forever and you'll have a great life. But but it didn't happen that way because Odysseus wanted to leave the island and, and continue the difficult journey. Yes, that's a great insight. I, I, I also want to see the other side of the coin for a minute and that is, I, I want to talk about goodness. Um, George, I have to say that I, like you, were I was raised in the Catholic tradition. And, uh, you know, there was a common thread that ran through that. And, you know, we've all had friends of different religious upbringings. And so we understand, I think, that we, you know, we were taught of a doctrine of goodness, that you are a child of God, that there is goodness, there is benevolence, there is love there. And how does dark religion frame the idea of goodness? Vlado, well, I think you were going to answer that. Uh, oh, but yeah, I can, I can start talking about it. So I, I, I look at the uh, goodness as a, a sort of a concept um, that is I, ideal, right? Just like there is a, a circle, it's a concept, but there is no perfect circle existing in, in reality. It's, it's a mathematical concept. And the goodness is also a concept that comes from perhaps the idealized patterns or archetypes in ourselves. But in everyday lives, they do not exist. 
So there is always a shadow behind every ideal. And I think that shadow gets uh, manifested in, a, in, in so many different ways. And I think that looking for goodness, it's a lifelong process that nobody has sort of an a priori answer to. It requires a struggle. It, it requires looking in a mirror and it, it requires asking a lot of questions. Just like Patricia said, like many people don't want their uh, uh, stances or positions have questioned or discussed because what happens to their goodness? And um, uh, I, uh, in my practice, and I'm sure in your practice as well, you see a lot of people who comes um, from the, who are sort of a victims of God-loving parents who were taught that's how you're going to be good and that's what's going to make you perfect, etc. And people start living their lives and their ideals bounce against the reality. And with that comes all kinds of um, feelings of shame and um, inadequacy and, and low self-esteem. And I think people, through the individuation process, ought to recover the true self, not the false self that was um, sort of injected in them through through the different expectations of uh, of society, something that maybe Alan Watts called the collective hypnosis based on different expectations and ideals. Uh, that's causing me to say, Vleto, uh, you're raising the issue of the true self and the false self. And I believe it was Hillman who said that the defended self is the false self. And it strikes me that the movement of fundamentalism is very defended. And it, in fact, encourages that kind of going to war to defend these principles of fundamentalism. Is Does that ring a bell with either one of you? Sure, sure. They're, they're stuck in that one-sided view. Like you're talking about goodness, and Bellato's mentioning it with dark, they need to be integrated. There's all, as Bellato says, there's goodness, but there's always a dark side to it. If we only look at the good and live in the good, we're not going to see the evil we are participating in. It's unconscious. We all have to look at our dark side. Dark religion brings that out, I think, to a degree. Some religions a little bit further along that line where they shut off anything that's dark because they've got the winning God, they've got, they know the answers, they know the absolute right and wrong, etc. And they can't be open to the evil they may commit in going to war, as you say, Patricia, or starting to say that the infidel must be killed. Yeah, I, 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 Jung said it, uh, that, that religion is a defense against the experience of God. He really meant like the, the, the what we would call the dark religion, that is the, the, it's a defensive um. And, and and I would like to say it is necessary to be defended against the experience of the God because the or the self because it can have a shattering effect on the ego. So there is a certain balance between um, protection and an integration. So these two have to go. Um, hand in hand. So the individuation is, is is really a process of letting 
us to be changed by the experience of the self. But on another hand, it has to come with a sort of a way that is uh, measured and patient and humble uh, if we are not to be uh, really destroyed by it. You know, you too have studied the work of Carl Jung and you have been analysts practicing for a couple decades. I came to Carl Jung's work only a decade ago. And so as I keep exploring it, I'm very conscious of things like symbol and ritual. And uh, this Easter, I was very attuned to the experience of, you know, Easter rituals in my faith and, you know, everything from Lenten ashes on the forehead to you know, uh, the, you know the the tinkling of bells and the, you know, the sacristy filled with the smell of incense and, right, all of that ritual. I got a lot out of that, <laughs> and so I'm going to ask you what you think fundamentalists are getting out of, personally, what you think they're getting out of their faith. Go ahead, Galato. Okay, I just wanted to be clear that when we talk about dark religion, it, it, the darkness only comes from when the ego is hiding behind it. If the, if, if the symbol is not really used in a way that is transformative. So the, the, really the dark energies, um, can possess the ego and cause different phenomena and can, as we said before, it can be projected. It can, it can, it can cause the conflicts, etc. But really the, the, the process of any religious rituals can be very healthy and helpful for anyone who genuinely participates on it. It is really the attitude. It is really the process one we relate to the process rather than uh, the process itself, if, if that makes sense. Uh, I, I think the Catholic Church or any other religious systems grew up out of the same, uh, from the same fertile ground and as uh, as any other religion. So there is something very vital and important in it, and we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater because whatever works for everyone is really the most important uh, for, for the ex- experiencer. Yeah. You, you both are putting your finger on Bellato and Patricia about the symbol is so important in this kind of work, death work, because the symbol is eliminated in fundamentalism. They have the concrete truth. It's not symbolic. What do you mean it's symbolic? It's not symbolic. But the symbol is the way we engage the divine and the transcendent. It speaks to us because it connects to the unconscious. Those ashes, the sim- the ritual we go through, you're bringing dark and light together in a way that um, integrates them in a, in a holistic, I would say, a holistic religion and helps us to look at the dark and light together. But without symbol, which I think is a major error for fundamentalism, we think we have it solid, we have it broken down. It's like physics. It's all symbolic reality. We've got to be open to the transcendent and the different experiences of it, dark and light, which only comes through ritual and symbol, sacraments, life, through living life. 
Yeah, so maybe we can think of it as a sort of, uh, for some fundamentalists, um, it maybe serves persona, right? It gives them power in the society. It is, it is maybe more like a, like a Band-Aid. If, if, uh, if somebody be, have a certain beliefs and uses those beliefs against others, against the queers uh, or against women, and in, in a form of control. So it is really the ego serving tool rather than individual individuating tool, which I consider to be uh, increasing insight and being able to, uh, to ponder and to say, I have a really moral dilemma. How am I going to approach it? And it is painful and I have to make certain, uh, certain decisions rather than I have a dogma and that's how it's going to be and we're going to punish you or we're going to excommunicate you or we're going to shame you etc you know i've been reading uh the work of a young a young irish scholar angela nagel and uh, she she wrote a book called kill all normies which followed this rise of fundamentalism on the internet and one of her theories is that it's that as generations begin to retreat from organized religion and millennials and gen x's are retreating from organized religion in far greater numbers than boomers did that religion would have to be infused by something else as as an organizing energy and that turned out to be politics and that then was fueled by the internet and that created a relevance for the followers that is kind of keeping fundamentalism alive as a, as a sort of religious mantra. I, I Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I Yeah, a lot of different thoughts. Um, a lot of people come to me today and say, you know, I'm not religious, but I'm deeply spiritual. That's that piece about we can differentiate the institutions and they're pretty much transparent about their own darkness and their own way of using religion for power versus eros and love. And so I think in the Western world, Christianity is undergoing a major transformative moment. Jung said this began like a hundred some years ago, and it takes 600 years for the new religion. He used the word 600 years for new religion to be birthed. So during this transitional period, I think you are right, Angela's right, that internet, which is both a beautiful dream and a nightmare, becomes sort of a nightmare when people can sort of become one-sided and find people to support their views and not be more open to the collective community of scholars and people. It narrows their worldview tremendously. Well, that's exasperated by the algorithms that then oh, yeah, yeah, that is true. You, never serve you another point of view. Oh my so, God, that's so true, is that? Right, yes, you begin to really believe you're right because everything you're searching tells you that. Look what God, yeah, look what so God does. God is the internet now. I get everything I want. Yeah. Uh, well, well I, I do want to ask you because the book talks about the numinous and that's such a an important theme in Carl Jung's work. And I'm wondering as as more and more religious identities get developed and tribes get formed online and people download spirituality apps and it's becoming more digital how where does the numinous experience fit in that 
digital realm. Can we still have a numinous experience online? Well, I I think that numinous experience happens within ourselves. I I, I think that what is online, or if it's online or is in a church, it is a sort of just the initial impulse, but then it, that it continues. And I think what we try to show in that book that really the numinous energy comes from within collective unconscious, if, if you will, which is everywhere. It's, it's outside and inside. We are sort of part of it. It's, a, it's the holistic life, life experience. And what people online do, or when people connect online, as, as you said, there is this kind of the, the connection and there is this anonymity and there is this yearning or seeking for some, for some kind of answers. So they get together and the energy starts working, right? So perhaps there are uh, also numinous energies, but they are not represented oftentimes in a healthy way. Say anger that gets projected, the other groups get vilified and people rarely seek their own self-reflection. Okay, this is, this is my shadow. This is my experience of the self. And I'm now splitting it and projecting the dark side onto the others. So the numinous is present, but the question is, does it help to transform, i.e., does it help to grow the consciousness? And many of those those groups that 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 anonymously works and they promote the conspiracy theories or or, or hate groups or, or, or you name it, I guess they just get possessed by the dark side of the numinous and never use it in a in a spiritual sense. But maybe what you are Patricia asking, uh, this is okay, you're asking, is there could there come could there be a positive numinous kind of a spiritual experience that comes from online groups? Is that's what that's what you mean? Yes. Uh, okay. I'm sure it's happening. I'm sure there are uh, there are groups that that promote a lot of a uh, lot of great things. Um, people uh, having collecting money for a for a for somebody's child who has cancer or or any sort of the goodness that comes from people who realize a lot of things through the society that are open and helpful. I think those things happens online as well. I think the other thing that uh, is causing me to question this, you know, if I look back to the Greeks and the Romantics um, and even some 20th century thinkers and writers, the idea of numinosity seems to rise very much from the physical world, from an experience in nature or, you know, an encounter in the real world. And so I, I, I'm just toying with this as, uh, as a matter of kind of trying to discover where where will we go with experiences of numinosity or will numinosity become like so much in, in modernity? Will it become individualistic and something that we experience in the absence of others? I, th- I think we may, but I don't think there's no prescribed idea about the form in which the numinous may or may not manifest in all experiences you mentioned nature dreams vision 
in people's illnesses in the body, breath work, in, in an intimate relationship between lovers, in a, a creative moment with aesthetics, um, synchronistic events. Um, yeah, and over the internet, it, it certainly can. I know a lot of uh, traditional Catholics who went to mass over the internet, attended rosary stations. There's a traditional way of it, and also another way to offer that other dark side that needs to be integrated, I think. So it's it's both a blessing and a curse. We have a dark side with everything and a light side. I'm not sure what you mean by in the absence of the other. I I think the other is so inevitable in the in the in the process of life. I can't even imagine how would that be just for a sort of an isolated person who doesn't have an, uh, a, a connection with the other because that that's where we actually live the world. All in love, we we hate the enemy, we uh, communicate uh, at, at work with our clients, with, with our parents, with with everyone. So um, it seemed to me that this is kind of an inevitable aspect of individuation to have the other as the holder of the other side. As, as Plato said, that we sort of the round original person was split in two, and now we are looking uh, for them to reconnect. So it it remains to be seen uh, what happens with with the internet and with artificial intelligence and with uh, virtualization of, of the world. But that's a really scary idea. I I I am a firm believer in nature, and really, you can read so many books or watch so many movies about nature, but unless once you go there and once you experience the 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 profound effect on you, then you realize you really have to be there. It strikes me, Vlado, just now listening to you that perhaps uh, the serious nature of the planet's condition is the counterpoint to our embrace of technology, that it is causing us to pay attention to the natural world so that it's a we're creating a balance and that reverence you know we're talking about religion here and religion invokes reverence right Mm -hmm. and perhaps the planet is calling our attention to a missing piece of what goes into the new menace experience and that is to to care for the natural world again that's very good. That's very good, Patricia. I, I, it just dawned on me that it's it. You know, Jung 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 said that God is reality. Yes, yes. And certainly, the our planet is is real, and if we don't pay attention to it, we if we cut the trees off, and then we realize there is no oxygen. We're not going to be able to produce it uh, on internet. <laughs> right. So we are really, <laughs> we really have to start paying attention to what is. A reality and illusion is so easy to fall for that really the reality can have a, a deathly consequences for us if we don't pay attention. Yeah, I think what you said was right on a lot, of, and particularly Patricia, you said that so well that we might look at it as the feminine or the maternal or some aspect of Mother Nature, Mother Earth, the respect for women. There's something shifting. Because you look at a lot of world religions and different cultures, it's so driven by a strong or extreme 
patriarchal stance that that's got to soften for an integrative moment, I think, between that masculine and feminine and not be so righteous and left brain, if you would, saying what we got to do or not do and make money versus taking care of the earth, being aware of the soul of the earth, the soul of religion. Jung said the psyche is religious by nature. Humans are religious by nature. And that is, you know, that's the drop of hope that I, I, I always listen for, George. And thank you. Thank you both for one of the most exciting conversations we've had here on Jung in the World. You were great, too. I appreciate your questions and the vivaciousness you have to do the work. It's It catches on, right? <laughs> that energy. You are amazing as well. And I love your podcast and uh, you, you spreading really the numinous and positive message on the internet. So that is... Uh, there is something to be said about now technologies that that we really can connect via where this means and be so far away from each other, physically speaking. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about training programs, live and self-study courses, archives, this podcast, our blog, or to find Jungian analysts near you, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Thanks to our 2022 donors who gave at the contributor level or above. Barbara Anand, Juni Alcott, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Building Leaders Inc., Judith Cooper, David J. Dalrymple, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, Ryan Mayer, Forrest Matthews, Judith A. Robert, Diane Sherwood, Lawrence C. Tingley, Deborah Tobin, Don L. Troyer, Robert Ulrich, Gerald A. Weiner, Ellen Young, and Wei Zhang. You can support this podcast by making a donation at our website, newchicago.org.